Coming up today on The Courier Daily. Okay, the pay isn't the best pay in the world, but actually it's real money. And, you know, getting my first paycheck a week and a half ago, it was that moment kind of looking and going, wow, this is like, you know, I've earned every penny of this, which is, you know, okay, I earned my money from, from fears, but this is, it's different, you know. I think it's what kind of grandparents refer to as a hard day's work, you know, a proper day's work. And a bit later on... For me personally, there's not as much business because of the, the races being postponed, but there's definitely more of an offering now than there was before in a virtual way. And that's great because it allows people to then work with trainers or coaches from around the world. It means that people can still, at the moment, work out with friends virtually. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 30th of April, and this is The Courier Daily. We're checking in with small business owners all over the world for insights on how to adapt and pivot during the pandemic. And today we begin with a look at how the owner of a watch company has done everything in his power to keep the lights on and keep his employees employed, even if that means taking a side job at a grocery store. Nicholas Bowman Scargill is the managing director of Fears Watches, a wristwatch company that existed in his family for more than a century before it closed down decades ago. Nick, who I've had the pleasure of knowing for some years now, rebooted the company, and he's now the fourth generation owner. Nick's on the line now, and... Nick, I mean, watches obviously aren't a growth industry right now, uh, smack dab in the middle of a pandemic. When did you realize, though, that this is really going to sting? There were several moments when I realized that something bad was about to happen. And I realized in about mid-February that our sales had really dropped off. People just weren't requesting brochures, they weren't visiting the website, and they weren't buying watches. It took a few weeks before I sort of plucked up the courage to start calling some other watch companies in Britain and saying, hey, how are sales going? And very quickly, people, when you admitted that your sales were rubbish, everyone else was like, yeah, our sales are atrocious. This is a big thing happening. And none of us were reliant on Asia. That's the thing. We weren't selling to China. So it wasn't like, oh, well, because China's in lockdown, Hong Kong and other Asian countries. It was going, well, actually, our customers in Germany, Britain, America, like these people aren't buying. Something is happening. People are less confident because to buy a £3,000 watch, you kind of need to feel like you can afford that easily. You know, four years ago when I was setting up the business, you know, because I was self-funding, I've always been very aware of costs. Also, I'm very proud of being half Yorkshire. My dad's from Bradford. And that's all, you know, I was always brought up to kind of respect money and not fritter it away. So as a result, I had a good idea, but not an expert idea. I needed to know raw numbers like, you know, when does the cash run out? When do the overdrafts run out? I meet with the accountant and I, in my head, have been doing some, you know, back of the fag packet sums going, right, I've got probably about half a year's worth of cash reserves if we cut everything. And those reserves would be assuming you had no incoming sales? Right. It's nice when you're doing a cash flow to kind of say, oh, what what sales could we have? I was like, no, actually, let's do this to zero. Like, we haven't had sales for a few weeks. If we do no sales, how long do we have? Like, what what is literally the point? And you thought it was six months? Yeah, so I thought it was six months. She said it was three months. Number one biggest cost is payroll. Then it's the office, the showroom, storage units for, you know, packaging, things like that. And, you know, we, we did it all the way down to our sort of two pound Apple iCloud subscription for the business. You know, literally anything that is a cost went on there. And this was also the weird moment because 
she said, well, do you want the good news or the bad news? And I said, well, okay, good news first. She said, well, the good news is you've been running the business really lean. There's no excess fat. There's no like unnecessary subscriptions or, and I was like, okay, what's the bad news? She said, well, you're going to have to literally cut things down. There's no easy cuts. Have to sell a kidney. (laughs) Right, exactly. You know, (laughs) it's like you've been so lean that, you know, there's literally nothing left to cut basically, unless you take something like cut an employee or like get rid of, uh, you know, an office. Exactly. And she immediately said, well, you need to look at payroll. That's the biggest cost. That's the easiest way to cut it. And this is, bear in mind, this is at least a week before the furlough announcement from the government. I think before she'd finished, I said, no, we're not doing that. We're not cutting the staff. I would rather, and slightly dramatically, I said to her, I would rather run all of our reserves to zero, but with the staff on full pay, because I will try and fight to do something. How many staff members did you have? Uh, So I have two, and then the accountant works freelance. That day, I started closing my office. I started, you know, taking all the watches out of my office, then out of the showroom, locking everything up, making sure everything's secure. And I, I remember sitting in my office, this was like five weeks ago, but it feels like five years ago, and sort of looking around, you know, everything kind of stripped, not bare, because obviously all the furniture's there, but and thinking, you know, actually, my predecessors, they must have gone through something similar in 1914 and 1939. Two world wars, the business survived, it somehow survived it. And I was like, right, I never thought I would have to do something like this, but right. Yeah. And for those who don't know the story, I mean, I imagine you should probably Google it because it's a great story. <laughs> it's hard to, to tell the story right now, but I mean, this is a company that's been in your family for generations upon generations and you restarted this quite recently. So as you say, I mean, world wars, famines, the influenza, <laughs> you know, pandemic of 1918. I mean, the company's probably seen it all. Right. I mean, you know, when the business was started 174 years ago, it was started in amongst a very different world, you know, the beginning of the Victorian era, everything changed, you know, and then it, yeah, it survived the previous influenza, you know, world wars, all kinds of Great Depression, all of these things, until it closed in the 70s. So, I mean, this is something, you know, from our conversations, you know, when I restarted, it was very much a, right, this is a family business, you know, I didn't take on any investment, I still haven't taken on any investment. It's always been about slow growth, which meant that going into this, I own 100% of the business, so I can make decisions very quickly on what I want to do and make decisions like we're going to pay the staff 100% of the pay. But it also meant that because I had run it lean, I hadn't been frittering money away on, you know, living the best entrepreneur life possible. We actually had some cash in the bank. You know, after having discussed that, she said, right, okay, well, you know, what about your own pay? And that was the moment where I go, actually, you know, the first few years I didn't take a salary from my business which I think a lot of founders are similar in doing that. But after three years, I was like, right, I'm going to start taking some money. So I had a an income and I decided to just cut that to zero because that immediately bought us several more months. You know, that immediately bought us back some some extra time. And then you just go through the list of all the suppliers, you know, and the landlord for the office and the storage unit and the phone company, the broadband, everyone, and just call up and go, look, I hate to ask, but what can we do? I don't want to just cancel my direct debits. You know, and I know some of your guests have have said that, you know, people have to just cancel, you know, just stop paying. You know, I've always been aware that everything is an ecosystem. Me not paying the landlord means landlord can't employ the reception staff, that the maintenance people, everything is is a knock-on effect. So I called everyone up and said, look, I don't want to cancel, but I need you to help me out. And this is where, from the beginning, 
Fizz has always had a philosophy. We've always paid every invoice on time or early. You know, we've never paid anything late. And we work with the same suppliers we've worked with for four years. And actually that loyalty has been rewarded numerous times in the last few weeks. One of the fairly interesting things to me, at least, about what you've done is you've taken on a a side job. So you're working at a, a grocery store, literally, in the early hours of the morning to supplement your income. Yes. So because I took my 100% pay cut, my husband and I looked at our finances and said, you know, we've got a a few savings, but not much. As you can imagine, anyone who owns a small business, you know, money is flowing usually towards the business, not from it. And said, well, actually, you know, we still got a mortgage to pay. We still got bills to pay. We need to buy food. So I closed my office on the Friday. And then that evening, you know, we were basically looking at the situation unfolding and I went to bed and then at midnight I couldn't sleep. So I got up and I wrote my first ever CV I've written in 10 years. And then I got up at 6am and basically drove to every supermarket in Canterbury and handed it in and basically said, look, I, I'm looking for any work, any hours. And, you know, I made a point of actually talking to the people who were going to be interviewing because I said, look, I know when you look at my CV, I've got, you know, a university degree. I, I own a watch company, you know, <laughs> I, I know at first I, I look potentially not your kind of, you know, your typical applicant, but I said, look, this job allows me to keep other people employed. So please don't just think, you know, I'm not going to be willing to roll up my sleeves. Anyway, I was very pleased the next day I got a call from uh, from Asda. The following day, I became a member of the, the Walmart family. So what are you doing then? What's your actual gig? Five mornings a week from 2 a.m. to 8 a.m., I basically, in our local superstore, I'm going around picking people's online deliveries. So they're not fulfilled by a central distribution center. They're fulfilled in the store. And it's amazing. In a six-hour shift, you basically, you walk 10 miles. You know, I have never been as fit and toned in my life because these supermarket trolleys, you use a special trolley and it gets very heavy. But yeah, you're basically filling. So when someone at home has like ordered X, Y, and Z that day it will be going out on on a lorry, like you're putting that stuff into bags and into baskets. There is a satisfying feeling of knowing that literally every six hours, you're probably stopping 10 families from having to go into a supermarket. Okay, the pay isn't the best pay in the world, but actually it's real money. And, you know, getting my first paycheck a week and a half ago, it was that moment kind of looking at going, wow, this is like, you know, I've earned every penny of this, which is, you know, okay, I earned my money from from fears, but this is, it's different, you know. I think it's what kind of grandparents refer to as a hard day's work, you know, a proper day's work. Yeah, exactly. How often do you do, you do this work? Uh, so I do it Friday to Tuesday mornings. So that means getting up at half 12, so just after midnight. I then do walk to work because very conveniently my car broke down the day of my first shift. So <laughs> I have a, a few mile walk in the dark and that's actually when I listen to your podcast. So it's my first thing I hear in the morning. It's all... It's a story to tell your grandkids. When I was your age, I walked five miles back and forth to work. Right, exactly. And then I do my shift and then, you know, I get home around sort of half eight, nine a.m. I usually go to bed for an hour because I'm just burnt out and then wake up and uh, take off my Asda uniform and get into a, you know, a shirt and chinos and and open the laptop and start working. And then 5 p.m. in the afternoon, it's basically trying to tell my body that I need to go to sleep and have seven hours sleep. As the kids say, uh, you know, major props, Nick. <laughs> that's, um, that's quite a lot of work you do every day. I think when you've got very little time and, you know, I, I look at all the people who are saying they're very, you know, bored on lockdown and running out of things to do. And I'm sort of like, 
I've never worked more in my life. You know, I thought before I was working long hours and now I, I really am. Next up, most of us might be in lockdown, but depending on where you live, you're still allowed some outdoor exercise. But what's it like when you're a running coach? Stephen Ajaydu is a coach, marathoner, and triathlete, and he's the founder of London Brunch Club, a running community. I wanted to know how his clientele and community have been impacted by the crisis. I caught up with him just a bit earlier. London Brunch Club started around six years ago now, initially just as a small group of friends training for half marathons and marathons around the same time. And from there, more people joined or more people wanted to come and run with us. And so from there, it really grew, I guess, with the help of social media as well. Yeah, as the sort of name suggests, we do long runs and then finish all of our runs with brunch. We now have quite a lot of partnerships with different cafes, restaurants across London. So we try and mix up our running routes, which then means we can go to kind of different restaurants and and cafes as well, which is great. So I want to walk through what the crisis means for runners and running clubs and you know and businesses as well so i mean running communities like yours obviously you guys are locked down now you're not running together when do you think you'll decide to start that back up again i mean there's lots of running communities like ours in london and worldwide and there's also a lot of bigger crews for example rundem crew or the original london UK run crew they regularly have over 100 runners and also traditional run clubs and really popular park runs who have multiple hundreds of runners and for people who don't know anything about this literally it's like a group of 100 people running by at the same time yeah exactly yeah quite often uh, split into different pace groups but yeah large groups of runners yeah and so I think effectively we all have to adapt to any new rules as you said currently we're not allowed to meet and I think looking at what the future might be in some countries I believe they're starting to look at reducing this the kind of social distance people have to be from two meters to one meter some are allowing smaller groups so between I think 10 and 20 so we might be affected in that way for us it might mean we have to look at slightly more localized groups into different parts of London rather than having one big group meeting once a week But also, yeah, yoga studios and gyms, spaces that are effectively set up for a specific amount of people will definitely be impacted if there's new rules in terms of how far people have to be away from each other. Also affect people like personal trainers and coaches and how they can interact with their clients. Generally, it's done quite close. And also mass participation races. So there's been a huge increase in in races over the last few years and a huge increase in numbers of participation, whether that's like running races, 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, and then through cycling events, triathlon. But of course, if they have reduction in the number of amount of participants or number of registrations they can have, there's an impact on that of on income and possibly sponsorship as well. So the impact on that could affect their viability for some of the smaller races or race organisers, and some might not be able to survive that. And similarly, right up to London Marathon, for example, which is highlight for a lot of us in the race calendar in London, they're looking at having October's rearranged race for this year as elite only. And last year, for example, they had 40,000 runners There was over 65 million raised for charity, which I believe was a world record for the biggest single day fundraising event. 
So obviously having that not as mass participation has a big impact on the charities that would have had quite a lot of income from that event, which then has a knock-on effect to the people that those charities help. And those same sort of space and distance criteria that might come in has obviously effect on the travel industry, smaller theatres, cinemas, pubs, restaurants, businesses that, that effectively have a certain amount of customers within a fixed space. This is going to be a really stupid question, but you can't run with a mask on, right? No, not with a mask on, no. So, um, <laughs> There's not like a special sort of mask that allows you to get more oxygen or something? Or? No, yeah. So I generally do wear a mask when I'm out and about at the moment. But no, I don't wear it when I'm running. But obviously, yeah, try and make sure I'm two meters away from everybody at, at all times as well. Do you think there's any silver linings for this in the running world? Will this spur on the development of online communities, more digital things? I know running is a very, it's a physical thing and you have to be outside inevitably with other people. But I guess, you know, will this bring something back into the home and spur on opportunities for smart entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think from what I've seen over the past few weeks, there is definitely more people out running now, which is obviously great. And I think that there's also quite a lot of brands, organizations, trainers, coaches, all offering online or virtual sessions through social media, which is also great. Because you're a coach as well. I mean, do you find there might be more clients for you because people are, they've picked up running during the crisis, post-crisis, things are sort of back to normal and they want to continue it so that maybe there's more business for you? Yeah. So I think for me personally, there's not as much business because of the, the races being postponed. So I think there's less people training specifically but there's definitely more of an offering now than there was before in a virtual way and that's great because it allows people to then work with trainers or coaches from around the world it means that people can still at the moment work out with friends virtually and that's also friends who live in other cities or other countries are able to work out together. And what, through like Strava or some app or literally with like a Zoom window open and you're just kind of like on a treadmill? Yeah, so through like Peloton app, I do a lot of online virtual riding on Zwift. And so you can arrange meetups with people who also have indoor bikes and, and kind of ride together virtually. So I think that's a really good option for people to have. But I think there's also, there's quite a lot of, coaches and trainers who are creating content creating workouts for people a lot of it free of charge but obviously a lot of them are also self-employed so it also affects you know their income and how they can work when gyms and training spaces where they would maybe normally attract clients are generally closed but I also think depending on who you follow or what you follow on social media or what you're subscribed to, there is a huge amount of offering out there at the moment. And I think it's also possible for people to feel overwhelmed by the amount of offering that there is and also maybe feel slightly pressured by, I guess, people post certain things on social media. So if it looks like everyone's out running or out exercising, you know, is there some pressure on you to feel like you should also be running, you should be exercising, you should be making the most out of the current situation. And I think definitely people shouldn't feel like that. I think it is a, a highly stressful time for a lot of people or for everyone. It's obviously not something we're used to. And for most people, not something we were prepared for. A key thing for me in terms of advice would be to just try and have a routine for whatever is good for you. I think that will be different for everybody, depending on kind of what you were doing before this all started. 
So if you were running regularly before, you know, now adding a few extra strength and conditioning sessions or a yoga session, it's not going to be a huge change for you, but you'll definitely get a lot of benefit from that. Whereas if you weren't running at all before and now you're going to try and run every day, that's like a huge jump. Key advice would be just to try and do it in kind of manageable steps. And if possible, like, yeah, just plan what you want to do, have some sense of a routine and that should kind of help. And that's it for today. If you like the episode as ever, please subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts. And also sign up to Courier Weekly, our email newsletter, for more stories of pivoting, adapting, surviving, and hopefully growing. Head to couriermedia.co slash sign up. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Courier Daily's back again on Friday. <laughs>